wonder how many of you have ever been asked the question, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? You ever been asked that question before? Yeah. If you've ever been asked that question, you know right away that something's wrong. You know that you're in trouble. But I, isn't it fascinating that when someone acts a certain way, we can instinctively ask somebody about their identity. You do something and then the question is, well, who do you think you are? The, while the question, it's meant, to, it's meant to shame the offender, it actually reveals a very powerful truth. Who you think you are determines how you live. Who you think you are determines how you live. It determines how you act. And we're often not aware of it, so why in this hypothetical situation, the person is asked, who do you think you are? You think you're some big shot because you're acting like it. We have to ask them, reflect on your identity because your actions are telling me something about who you think you are. You probably need a big dose of humility if you're asked that question. In the Christian life, we need the same kind of checkup. So brothers and sisters, who do you think you are? Examine your life, your words, your actions, your affections. What does your life say about who you think you are? The Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the Ephesians, he was writing to Christians in a very worldly culture. There were many things competing for their identity. And Paul is trying to firmly root these believers in their identity in Christ. And so it's essential that these believers, and essential for us too, that we would be firmly rooted in our identity. Otherwise, we will act out in ways contrary to our identity in Christ. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning uh, to Ephesians 5. And if you don't normally follow along, I would ask that you follow along this morning. Because there are some deep truths in here and some hard truths in here that I want you to see how it comes from the Scripture itself. So Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to be starting in verse 1. In our text this morning, there are four identities, identity markers, which tell us who we are in Christ. And we're going to be talking about each one. So the first identity that we, that we come across in this text is this. Number one, we are dearly loved children for whom Jesus died. We are dearly loved children for whom Jesus died. Paul, he starts out this passage by saying, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We all long to be loved. We all long to be loved. This is a core need, a core desire that God has wired into the human heart. We long to be fully known and we long to be fully loved. And only God... He is the one that has known us from beginning to end. He has heard every babbling word you said as a toddler to every word that you said up to today. He knows every thought. He knows every action. He has seen all of your goings and your comings, all of your highs, all of your lows. God has seen it all. And God fully loves you. He dearly loves you. How do we know? Because Jesus loved us, Paul says, and he gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice unto God through the cross. I believe there is no greater love possible than giving your own life. You can give people your time. You can give people money. You can give people acts of service. But if you sacrifice your own life, you have given up everything. And we see glimpses of that in our own world, don't we? People who give up their life for others, people they love, or you know, people, their family, or whatnot. But Jesus, he gave up his life for people who did not even love him back. He gave up his life for those who were sinners and rebellious towards God. But the Bible says, even while we were still sinners, 
Even while we were rebelling against God's ways, Christ died for us. He loves us. He has proved it to us. And this, because of that, this is an unshakable identity. You aren't just loved by God. You are dearly loved, supremely loved, greatly loved, more loved than you could ever fathom or imagine. And who you think you are determines how you live. So if that is our identity in Christ, how will that change the way that you behave? Brothers and sisters, I believe that dearly loved people will dearly love others. Dearly loved people, they're going to dearly love other people because that is their identity. This is why Paul is saying to them, follow God's example. Or another translation says, be imitators of God. Follow God, imitate him, mimic, reflect, become like your father. Isn't it only fitting that the child becomes like the parent? We are supposed to become like our heavenly father. And as children of the most loving father imaginable, we must be people who dearly love others. This, I believe, is an astoundingly high call. This is a high call. Follow God, follow God's example, be like God. But this is nothing new. This is a, very, this is a big theme in the Bible, Leviticus 19 in the Old Testament. God says to the people, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. In other words, become like me, be holy like me. Jesus said the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is a high calling, is it not? Yet it's grounded in who you think you are. It's grounded in your, your identity. If we are dearly loved children, then we can become like our loving Father. I love how Klein Snodgrass, he was a, a scholar, New Testament scholar at North Park for many years. And he said this, he says, copying God only means taking seriously who God says we are. Do you take seriously who God says you are? He says you are his dearly loved children. Who you think you are determines how you live. God says you're loved. So become children of God. Become, imitate your father. And now that you are children of God, you have his Holy Spirit in you, empowering you and giving you all that you need for a godly life in Christ Jesus. You can become like Jesus because you have the spirit of him who raised him from the dead living in you. So follow God's example and be people who dearly love others. So that's number one. Number two is this. We are God's holy people. We are God's holy people. I'm going to spend some time in here because there's some difficult things to talk about. But to be holy means to, to be set apart, to be consecrated, to be different from all that it is around it. God is holy. He is consecrated. He is set apart from everything else. And Christians are God's holy people, his different people, his set apart people, his consecrated people. And I think many people begin to feel a tension between this first identity of being loved and this identity of being God's holy people. Because I think many people think, well, if we're dearly loved, well, that's good. God must approve and affirm of all that I am. And all that I do, that's not the case. And I think most people would prefer to hear the first identity only. God dearly loves you. And then to stop right there and to say nothing else. But to say nothing more would not be the whole truth. Because the tension is, God dearly loves us and God demands from us holiness. Both of those are true, 100% true at the exact same time. Friends, God dearly loves you and he demands holiness from you. Those are both true at the exact same time. So who do we think we are? We are God's holy people. And if we're God's holy people, this demands from us a holy way of life. So Paul puts it this way in verse 3. Look in your Bibles. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. In other words, they don't line up with your identity. 
If your identity is God's holy people, this doesn't fit. And so Paul, in this passage, he is beginning to go on an onslaught, a confrontation of behaviors in the church that are improper. Who do the Ephesians think they are? If they are God's holy people, Paul says, there should not even be a hint of sexual morality, impurity, or of greed. So in other words, these must be totally renounced in the church. God's holy people cannot tolerate what is unholy in the church. Even though they know they are God's dearly loved children, they also know that they are God's holy people. And sinful behaviors must be renounced and repented from in our lives. And so Paul, in this first part, he begins to single out three areas to completely avoid. The first two are related. He says sexual morality and impurity. And in Greek, these terms basically mean the exact same thing. They are general terms, the most broadest terms, to basically to list any kind of sexual expression outside the bounds of a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. In Paulus, he says there's both are generic words. He's trying to paint a broad as brushstroke as possible, anything outside of God's bounds. There not should be even a hint of in God's church. And this would have been absolutely crazy talk. Crazy talk to the people in the first century, in the Mediterranean churches. Because in that culture, in fact, for most people, sexual immorality was not really considered a sin at all. Sex with multiple people was expected and normal, especially for the men. Marriage was flippant. You could say that people got married in order to get divorced. I mean, it was that frequent and that constant. The Roman Emperor Nero, for example, Nero had multiple spouses at various points, including both men and women. This was just the expected thing of the day. It wasn't considered an issue. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. From Roman history, the Roman uh, philosopher Cicero, he says if there is anyone who thinks that young men should be absolute, absolutely forbidden, the love of courtesans, that is prostitutes, he is indeed extremely severe. He says, if you're going to forbid you know, young men to do whatever they want to do with other women, you are being extremely severe. That was the mentality that people had in the Greco-Roman world. And there was also this mentality that if you were truly enlightened, if you were truly educated, that you would know that there were no bounds. N.T. Wright put it this way. He said, those who were enlightened could do what they wanted with their bodies. It was only people who were still in the dark who thought they had to practice restraint. So in other words, in the first century, when, the, when Christianity is spreading the moral ideal of marriage, the people thought, this is extremely severe, and you're unenlightened, you're uneducated. That was 2,000 years ago, but I would say those attitudes are very prevalent in our culture today. It's very severe, and it's unenlightened. We, we know better. But we must ask ourselves, who do we think we are? Do we get to determine what is right and wrong? Do we get to make up our own boundaries for what is moral and what is not? And are we primarily beings who must obey our sexual impulses and desires? For Christians, we are God's holy people. And he demands from us his version of holiness. And we can trust that it becomes our, because that it comes from our loving Father, it will always be for our good. It will always be for our best. It will always be for our protection. Now, this is not a sermon dedicated to all the issues of the se sexual issues of our day. I can't talk, I can't get into all of that this morning. We don't have time. And I recognize that this is not easy. I recognize that there is a lot more to it than what I've laid out here. We're going to be having several conversations over the next year about how to navigate all of the sexuality and gender conversations that are going on in our culture today. And I think it's going to be very helpful to all of us to begin talking about that, but I cannot get into it now. And we must make sure that we do not set our focus only on this issue alone, because neither does Paul. 
he begins to say, also greed is improper for God's holy people. And the reality is most people in our culture do not even consider greed to be a sin. They think it's a good thing. Get, uh, improve your stuff. Lavish yourself with experiences. Lavish yourself with good things. Improve your standard of living. This is the dream that most people have. It's not a sin. It's, it's a virtue. And I think by living in one of the wealthiest parts of one of the wealthiest countries on planet Earth, don't you think we're at least a little bit susceptible to letting a hint of greed in the church? I think we are. We are. So we have to be, we have to be careful about this, to let, not it, to let greed not slip into our lives unnoticed. So, you know, be honest with you guys, I'm not sure you would have liked Paul's preaching very much. <laughs> because he's not done. He continues. He goes, number, look at verse 4. He says, Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse jo- joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. In other words, we should not be sitting with our speech, dirty jokes, out of place, tearing other people down with your words, out of place. Rather, thanksgiving. Thanking God and thanking others should flow out of our speech and be holy in all that we say. And Paul begins to say that these types of things, they do not line up with our identity as God's holy people. And then he begins to elevate the seriousness of this issue in the very next verse. Look at verse 5. For this, of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, they worship another god. No person has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. You know, I think it's a really healthy thing to read and preach through whole books of the Bible because it makes you say and think on things that are very difficult and unpopular. And Paul says, of this you can be sure. In other words, you can count on it. This is the truth. Those who reject God's call by consistently living in sexual immorality and greed and impurity, they will not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. In other words, they will not be saved. No matter if they went to church, no matter if they were a good person, no matter if they called themselves a follower of Christ, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And some of you might be thinking, well, mate, does this really sound like Jesus? The truth is it does. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father. It doesn't matter if you say, Lord, Lord. It doesn't matter if you come to church. It doesn't matter if you claim the name of Christ. You must live it out and practice it. So neither Paul nor Jesus is saying, well, if you mess up once, you're out. Otherwise, no one would be saved, right? That would be ridiculous. God is a God of grace who forgives us. But he is saying, those who intentionally and willfully and consistently rebel against God, they are not truly saved and they will not inherit the kingdom. These are hard words to hear. These are difficult words for me to say. But we're easy to be deceived in this area. This is why Paul continues in verse 6. He says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. In Paul's day and in ours, there are those who will use words, things that sound very reasonable, very reasonable, to try to convince us that God really doesn't care about these things at all. So Paul says, watch out. God's wrath, which almost always means God's end-of-time judgment on the world, it's going to come on those who willfully disobey God with their life. I like what William Barclay says. He says, the greatest disservice anyone can do to someone else is to make that person take sin lightly. Oh God, help me never take sin lightly in the church. Let me never take sin lightly in my preaching. Let me never take sin lightly in my ministry. 
Let me preach the truth. Guys, I am, I am bound to say whatever this book says. This is the word of God. And my commitment is to always preach and to teach whatever I find in here. This is the word. This is our foundation. And I'll be honest, I don't like the judgment parts of the Bible as much as I love all the loving parts of the Bible. But sometimes we're so hard-hearted, it's the only thing that we'll get through to some people. You know, we're, I'll be honest with you, we're, we're, we're having some parenting struggles right now. We're trying to figure out the issue of disciplining a toddler. Anybody ever, ever had an issue with that? And right now I'm discovering that the only thing that will work with my sweet Daisy is to warn her that she's going to get in trouble if she doesn't listen. It's to warn her that she's going to get a timeout if she doesn't listen to what mom and, dad are saying, mom and dad are saying. Now I assure you, I would much rather Daisy listen to me by saying, by me telling her, Daisy, I'm your father. I love you. I want what's best for you. I, I want you to have the best life possible. If you listen to me, everything's going to go well for you. But that doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. You've, you've experienced this. You know what I'm saying? And I believe this, the same is true in the Christian life. Sometimes we just need a warning to take sin seriously, to be warned. I would much rather tell all of you God loves you and God, all of God's plans are the best for you and God, God wants a fulfilling life for you in Christ Jesus. But sometimes you need a warning that God takes sin seriously. So if none of all that stuff doesn't work for you, heed the warning of God. God will judge sin. God will judge those who persistently and willfully depart from his ways. And in the end, he will say to them, thy will be done. And they will be shut out from the presence of God. Thy will be done. Who you think you are determines how you live. So who do you think you are? You are God's holy people. You belong to him. And he requires from us a holy life. So be holy in all that you do. Be pure and stay far away from greed. So number two, we are God's holy people. Number three is this. We are the light shining in the darkness. We are the light shining in the darkness. Paul continues his discourse in verse 7. Therefore, do not be partners with them. In other words, don't partake of the same things that they are doing. For, verse 8, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. So Paul makes this contrast. You once darkness and sin and evil. Now you are light in the, in the world. Notice he says, not this, he says, not that you are in the light, not that you have a light within you to shine, not that you are partially light and partially dark, not that Jesus is the light and we must reflect him. No, he says, you are light. You are light. You are light. Because of Jesus, something radical has happened to you. That you have been changed from the inside out, and now, because of him, because of your union with him, the mystery of this union, you are now light in the world. You are light because of the Christ you are connected to. So the last point Paul said, this was, was all about what Christians need to avoid. This is all about what Christians must do. Positively, they must do. We must live as children of light in the world. It means we must practice our faith and live it out. Verse 9, Paul continues, he says, The fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. So as we allow the Holy Spirit in our lives to strengthen us, we must do the good, we must do what's right by God and man, and we must do what is true, and then we must discern what is really pleasing to God. What, what would God be pleased with, with my life, with my time, with my money, with all that I do, what would please him? And then we must do that. 
And then when we do that, that is how the light shines. Jesus said it this way. He said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. You see, the light has a transforming effect on everything that's around it. What, what, was it, what once was dark is now lit up and made visible. It has a transforming effect on everything. And I'm afraid we haven't done so well as a church in general about letting our light shine before others. We have to ask ourselves, is our light shining bright enough for people to see are we performing those good deeds, those good works for which others will give praise to God? Will people notice that we are here? Will people notice if we are gone? Are we letting our light shine? So we must keep examining ourselves in our church and ask, is our light shining? Who you think you are determines how you live. So who do you think you are? We are light shining in the darkness. And finally, our last identity for this morning is we are the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. Now, we didn't read this portion in our scripture reading for this morning, but it's a profound identity marker that I cannot skip over. And it's found in a section that has instructions for husbands and wives in marriage, which I don't have, also don't have time to get into today, but we're just going to talk about the identity part. So Paul says to husbands, starting in verse 25, he says, Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Pause right there. Do you notice that Christ's desire is for the bride to be holy and blameless? That is Christ's desire for the church. In verse 28, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. This whole passage of Ephesians 5 is about our identity. If we are in Christ, if we are God's holy people, if we are the light, if we are the bride of Christ, then we must be holy and blameless in all that we do. And our identity as the bride of Christ tells us, I think, at least two things. A, that we are one with Jesus. We are one with Jesus. Talk about this in the call to worship. We are, we are united to him. It's a profound mystery, but we are in this connection with the living God. We are united to him. We are one with him. Because it's all, it's all about relationship. He wants that closeness. He wants that intimacy from us. And B, it tells us that we are in a covenant with God. We're in a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. It's a commitment between two parties. And it means that we're no longer free to pursue other lovers. We renounce those, that path. We're committed to one. And it also means that Jesus is committed to us. We are his bride. We are his body. We are his church. Jesus is our head. So let me ask us this morning, whose church is this? Whose church is this? Who does faith covenant belong to? Really, it belongs to Jesus. So it's, it's not my church. It's not your church. It's not even our church. This is Jesus' church. Just, think, just pause and think about that for a second. This is Jesus' church. And if this is Jesus' church... We are obligated to discern what Jesus wants to do in and among us and through us. And we're obligated to get on with doing that because it's his church. He is the head. We belong to him. Who you think you are determines how you will live. So who do you think you are? You are the bride of Christ. You belong to him. So let me recap a little bit. Who do you think you are? You are God's dearly loved children for whom Christ died. You are God's holy people. You are light shining in the darkness. And you are the bride of Christ. 
So to apply the sermon this morning, you're going to have to reflect a little bit. Who do you think you are? What do your actions, what do your words, what do your attitudes show you about how you think about yourself? What is your ultimate identity? What is governing your life? What is in the driver's seat of your identity? I talked about this a few weeks ago in my sermon uh, in Ephesians 1 in prayer, and Henry Nouwen, he gives five lies of identity. He says, we're often tempted to think, I am what I have, I am what I do, I am what other people say of me or think of me, I am nothing more than my worst moment, and I am nothing less than my best moment. These are all lies that, are, are, that tempt us to place our security and our identity in. We, in Jesus Christ, we are not what we have. We are not what we do. We are not what other people say of us or think of us. We are not defined by our worst moment, and we are not defined by our best moment. We are de- defined by being in Christ only, in Christ alone. I will not trust in any other frame, but only in Jesus' name. We have other identities that compete for our driver's seat. We, some people think we are what we feel. We think I am my sexuality. We think I am my race. We think I am my bank account. We think I am my success. We think I am my family. I am my tribe. No, no, no. We are God's dearly loved children. We are his holy people. We are the light shining in the darkness, and we are the bride of Christ. Friends, the good news is when you make those four things your core identity, it will change how you live. And you will find, I believe, abundant life, life full of joy, life full of peace, because God is your heavenly Father, and he wants you to know who you are, who you are in him. You are his beloved. Walk in his ways. We're going to move to prayer this